0: As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, by your spirit, through the word, send out your light and your truth and let them lead us. Let them bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then we will come to the cross of Christ, to the Son of God, our exceeding joy, and we will praise you, O triune God, our God. Hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 19 together. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here today. We've been considering a series through the book of Proverbs, and we've come to chapter 4, verse 10. You'll find that right close to the middle of your Bibles. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 672 between the books of Psalms and Ecclesiastes. And so Proverbs chapter 4, we'll begin our reading at verse 10, and we'll read through verse 19. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it and pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. We're picking up this discourse from chapter 4 that has important instruction for the pilgrim on the way. Um, This really is a chapter that's all about advice for the pilgrim and wisdom to follow for all of life. As we considered the first part of chapter 4 last time, uh, the message was very plain and obvious, get wisdom. Um, And so one person pointed out that as we look at this lifelong pilgrimage, the first thing we need to do is get wisdom. We need to seek it. And once we have it, uh, we need to follow it. It doesn't do any good if you've sought wisdom, you have wisdom, and you don't let it guide you. Um, And so the message really of this verse first is, the chapter really is, first get it, and once you've gotten it, follow it. Choose that way. And that really is what the father is interested in telling his son here. You have to choose to follow the path of wisdom. Uh, you have to choose to follow that path. And why does the father so urgently want his son to follow the path of wisdom? Is because it's a path that leads to true life. Uh, the life that God promises, the abundant life that is always being pointed to us, In the book of Proverbs, the father is urgent with his son because he says we get wisdom and once you get it, follow it. Follow the path of wisdom because that's the path that leads to true and abundant life. Um, That's why there's an urgency in this passage to go in the right way and not to take one step in the wrong way. Um, And that really is what the message is of this passage. Not only the son, but all of us who are hearing this wisdom must choose to follow the path that leads to life. We must choose to follow the path of wisdom. And how does this passage say we'll do that? Uh, How can we follow this path? How can we make sure that we don't uh, put a step wrong? Well, we have to understand first the pathway to life. Uh, The pathway to life, that's where the father begins with his son, talking about that pathway. We also have to understand the pitfalls of evil. And that's what the father also wants his son to understand the pitfalls of evil, and finally to understand the promise of light that shines on the upright and their path. And that's the last thing we have to understand, the promise of light. So that's how we want to think about this passage this morning. How do we choose the path that leads to life? By understanding the pathway to life, the pitfalls of evil, and the promise of light. Uh, the, The passage breaks down pretty evenly into three sections. Uh, Verses 10 through 13 really are about the path that leads to life, the path of the wise. Uh, The next three verses are really about the path that leads to death, 14 through 17, four verses actually describe the path to be avoided. Um, And 18 and 19 compare the two. So we want to start where the father starts with the pathway that leads to life, the pathway he urges his son to follow and to not let go. And from verses 10 and 13, it's clear what the father's purpose is in this instruction. He wants his son to find life. Right, we see at the end of verse 10 that the years of your life would be many. And at the end of verse 13, for she is your life. Life brackets everything the father is going to say to his son about this path. That's what he wants him to find. We'll come back and think about what that life consists of, but it's clear that everything the father is going to tell his son has that purpose in mind, that focus in mind, that you'll find life. That's what I want for you, to find life. Um, And how is life to be found? Well, first by listening to the words of his father, listening to instruction. Um, The father says that you have to hear what he has to say and you have to accept it. Uh, That's somewhat familiar. We've seen a pattern of instruction by the father to his son, hear what I have to say, accept it. Um, accept what I have to say as what it is the words of wisdom. The father's instruction and wisdom are the same thing in this passage. They're, they're, the, they're the same thing. Whether it's instruction in verse 13 or the father's words in verse 10, they're the same thing. They're God's wisdom transmitted through the family to the son. And those words have to be heard and accepted in verse 10. And they have to be kept hold of in verse 13. Keep hold, do not let go, guard them. Everything that's being told to you, you have to hear it, you have to accept it, you have to keep it, you have to not let it go and guard it. Right? All of these urgent commands about keeping these things, keeping to the way of wisdom uh, so that you come to the right end. It has to begin there if you want to come to the right end. Wisdom has to be listened to because they are the guidance for the path. They are the guidance for the path. Uh, The path of wisdom is found, as one commentator said, through catechesis, through a catechism, through training. Catechism simply means question and answer, instruction and training. But it's found through direction. This path is not presented as to us as a path that you just find on your own or that, you know, sort of everyone has to find their own way. Uh, that's not what the Father says. He said, actually, there's one way, and if you want to find it, you have to listen to those who can point you in that direction because it's not, you know, just sort of always lead to where you want to go. The Father says, no, there's actually only one way that leads to where you want to go, and you have to find it, and I will direct you, I will lead you. On that path, that's his point as he goes on with his son. I have taught you the way of wisdom in verse 11. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. Those verbs are not really past tenses, they're present tenses. I'm doing this with you right now. You're being led. We are being led on this path. We're going this way together. And it's interesting that that paths of uprightness, we could even translate that as tracks, I'm leading you on the tracks of uprightness. Um, and why that's interesting is because it has this sense of there are ruts in the road that we're following. Um, the path is well worn the way we're going to go. Um, the, the Oregon Trail that settlers used to journey west. There are still places in America where you can see the wagon ruts in the ground where settlers went on the Oregon Trail. It was the proven trail. It was the way you knew where you were going. You followed the tracks that were in the ground. And that showed you it was a proven way. You knew that way would take you safely west. And if you're going to choose guides to the west, and you had one saying, we're going to follow the tracks, we're going to follow the proven trail out west, and you had someone else say, I think we should find our own way. Come with me and let's just trailblaze our way across the West. Won't that be fun? That sounds like the way you end up as part of the Donner Party, deciding which one of us will eat the other first. Right? That's not the guide you want to follow. You want to say, no, no, let me find the tracks. Let me follow the tracks that I know are sure, that I know lead where I'm trying to go. That's what the Father is saying to the Son. This is the road. This is the ancient road. This is the well-proven road. This is the road you know will lead where you're trying to go. That's the road we're walking together. We're not trying to forge our own way or try to find our own path. We're following the tracks. We're following the tracks of uprightness. The paths of uprightness or the paths of straightforwardness. Uh, the, The way, the ancient proven way is a straight way. It's a direct way. Um, And that straightness has a moral sense. It's the right way to go. That ancient proven way is the right way. That's what that sense of straightness had. That's why the wicked's paths are often called crooked. This is not a crooked path. This is a straight path. Uh, It's a morally straight path. It's a practically straight path. It's the best way to go. It's the best way to get there. Um, Everything about this path, everything about these tracks are upright, they're straight, they're the way to go. It's the direct way, it's the right way, and it's a safe and sound way. That's the point the Father makes in verse 12. If you go on these tracks, if you follow this path, when you walk, your step will not be hampered. You'll be able to walk normally and naturally down this path. Well, what does it mean when our steps are, are hampered? It means the ground is unsure. If you've ever had to try to walk across icy ground, you can't just stride your normal stride. You have to kind of be careful about how you walk. Or if you've ever been hiking somewhere where you have to hike across loose rock on a hillside, you have to be very careful about how you walk. You have to chop your steps. You have to be careful where you place your feet. The father saying to his son, this is not that kind of road. Your steps won't be hampered on this road. This is a road you can walk normally and safely. This is a road you can run on and not be stumbled. A road you can run on and not be tripped up. To be stumbled has this sense of someone trying to trip you, of an obstacle trying to grab you. Um, And the Father says, you know, on this road there's nothing like that. There's nothing you'd run and trip over. In fact, you can run and not grow weary on this road. That also has something of the idea of why do you stumble because you get exhausted um, and your legs begin to fail you. So there's nothing like that on this road. It's a straight road. It's a safe road. It's a road you can walk without fear. It's the right way to go. It's the best way to go. It leads inevitably to life. There's nothing on this road to be feared. Nothing on this road to be avoided. You can just walk it. It's the straight way. It's the best way. And its end is life. True and abundant life. Those who walk this path, what will they find? Well, it's clear at the end of verse 10. The years of your life will be many. That's a picture of blessed life. That's a picture of abundant life. Uh, She will be your life, he says in verse 13. Now, when we hear promises like this in Proverbs, we've done this before, we have to pause and ask the question, what does Proverbs mean here? Does it mean that everybody who walks in the way of wisdom will have long life? And we might think about the reverse and say, if someone doesn't have long life, does that mean somehow they missed the path of wisdom? Um, These promises have to be thought about so that we don't think for a moment that God is over-promising and under-delivering. So we rightly understand what's being spoken about here. What does Proverbs mean when Proverbs means life? It means life in fellowship with God. It means life lived under God's favor and the kind of health and prosperity and longevity and social esteem that comes from God and from living in life of God's favor. And that's how we have to understand life that's true and abundant as Proverbs understands it is life in fellowship with God, life that's lived under God's favor. And that's true for the righteous no matter how long they live. That's a point we have to understand. That's the horizon we have to look at when we look at life. Otherwise, we'd be tempted to think that God's promises fail, which is a terrible thought. The psalmists wrestle with that in the center of the psalms. Have God's promises failed? And if some of his promises fail, how can I trust the other promises? It throws you into a whole crisis of faith. If you don't understand the promises as God means them. You know, I lost a sister last year and I lost the best, one of my best friends last year. Neither of them had reached their 44th birthday. And if we want to say long life comes with the godly, they were both godly. Do we want to say that somehow God's promises failed them? No, we have to understand life as Proverbs understands life, as God means us to understand life. The true and abundant life is found in fellowship with Him, and that does mean health, and that does mean prosperity, and that does mean long life, and it does mean esteem in the eyes of God. And that's, not, that's true no matter how long this life lasts, because there's a life beyond this life. Um, Calvin contemplating this same the same difficulty from from Psalm 91 that we prayed as part of our congregational prayer. I will satisfy them with life. Um, he wrestled with the problem of what do we do when people don't live long lives, and I like how he put it. It may seem strange that long life should be promised to them since many of the Lord's people are soon taken out of the world. But those divine blessings which are promised in relation to the present perishing world are not to be considered as made good in a universal and absolute sense or fulfilled in everyone according to one set and equal rule. Wealth and other worldly comforts must be looked upon as affording some experience of the divine favor or goodness, but it does not follow that the poor are objects of the divine displeasure. Health of body and good health are blessings from God, but we must not conceive on this account that he regards with disfavor the weak and infirm. Long life is to be classed among benefits of this kind and would be bestowed by God upon all his children were it not for their advantage that they should be taken early out of the world. They are more satisfied with the short period during which they live than the wicked though their life should be extended for thousands of years. It is a privilege, particularly belonging to the Lord's people, that they are satisfied with life. The brief appointed term is reckoned by them to be sufficient, abundantly sufficient. Besides, longevity is never to be compared with eternity. The salvation of God extends far beyond the narrow boundary of earthly existence. And it is to this whether we live or come to die that we should principally look. Isn't that fine? Um, All of God's blessings are to be thought of individually bestowed as he sees best to each of us. But I like his point that even if the godly are taken out of life early, they live a better, more abundant life than any life lived by the wicked, no matter how long. And I love his point that we ought not to be confusing longevity with eternity. We see our lives on a broader horizon. That's what the Father wants His Son to find. That's what the Lord wants His children to find. Not just this life, but the life that extends beyond this life. And is there any doubt that the life that extends beyond this life is a life of health, lived in the Lord's favor? Is there any doubt that the life of heaven is a life of prosperity in the Lord's favor? A life of social esteem where those who confessed His name before the world, He confesses before His Father in heaven? Is there any doubt of these things? Longevity, eternal life, uh, that that life is abundant? That's what the Father wants His Son to find. Not these things as the scope of our, world, our earthly existence would, would define them, but the scope that God looks and God holds out as promises to us An eternity of blessedness. That's what Jesus wanted his people to understand when he came into this world. That's the life I'm promising you. A life that begins now and spans beyond the horizon of our earthly existence. A life that extends beyond death, over which death has no power. Um, That just goes from one life to another life. Uh, Where the mortal that's in us is swallowed up, not by death, but by life, as the apostle says. That's the life we're looking for. That's the life held out to the people of God. That's where this path leads. That's what Jesus came to give his people. That's what he said in John 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The way he describes abundance. The abundance that comes from living life in fellowship with the Father through Christ Jesus, his Son. That's a life of blessedness. That's a life of eternity that spans beyond the longevity of this life. To know and have fellowship with God. Uh, Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The Father wants His Son to find that life. Um, The Lord wants us to find that life. And it's found by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We put our faith and trust in Him. We deny ourselves. We pick up our crosses and we follow Him in this life. Confident that we will find that true abundant life in Him. That those who lose this life will find life in Him. Because he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one will come to the Father but through him. That's the pathway that leads to life. It has to be understood. When we understood that, when we understand it properly, we'll want to walk that path no matter what else is offered. And that's why the son needs to understand that path first and foremost. So that he understands that all other paths are to be avoided. The son also needs to understand the pitfalls of evil that exist in this world. Because there is one path that leads straight, that can be followed, that's safe, that doesn't offer any problems or terrors. And there's another path that goes a completely different way. That's to be avoided at all costs. The path of foolishness, the path of wickedness, and the urgency to avoid this path could not be greater. Right? The the Father says, You know, three times in verse 13, do not let go, guard her, for she is your life. Keep hold of her. Uh, Three ways of saying keep hold. Here we have six ways of saying avoid the other path. He's doubling the commands. He's setting forth the urgency. This is a path you are to stay away from at all costs. Do not enter it. Do not walk on it. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Right? Does that communicate to us what he wants us to do with that path? Um, stay away from that. This is the way to walk. This is the well proven way. Do not take one step that way. That's not a way that leads to life. Where does that lead? That path leads to a nightmare. That path leads to a horror that is almost too terrible to be contemplated. That's what the father sketches for the son in talking about the wicked the way he does. It's meant to be a horrific picture. It's meant to be one so terrible we can hardly bear to look at it. Uh, that's, the, that's the wicked that we see sketched. They're addicted to evil. One commentator called them evil holics. Uh, they, they can't function without evil. Right? What, is, what is it said about the evil? They cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. Wickedness and violence is their sedative. They can't sleep unless they've done violence to someone. It's not just the sedative without which they can't sleep. It's the food and drink without which they can't live. They eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. Just like many grapes are crushed to make one cup of wine, many wickednesses flow into that. He's saying that's where that that path leads. You end up being someone who, who depends on wickedness to function. Can't function without it. Can't sleep without it. Can't live without it. That's where that path leads. That's why it's to be avoided at all costs. It's a picture meant to make us recoil with horror. It's meant to be the stuff of nightmares to look at the wicked. And it's meant to beg the question, how do you end up like that? Right? These were people who, in chapter 1, were friends of the Son, saying, hey, you know what? Let's go out. Let's, let's get into some trouble. Let's lay and wait for some people. Let's take their money. We'll have all kinds of stuff in our houses. It'll be, it, it's an easy day. It's an easy payday. They used to be just like the sun. Now they become this. They become this horror. And it's meant to force us to look at that and to ask the question how do you become like that? How do you end up so bad that you can't sleep without wickedness and you can't live without wickedness? How do you end up like that? You end up by taking small steps down that road. It doesn't happen overnight. You put one foot in front of the other down that road, and before you know it, you're a monster without realizing it. That's the danger the father is sketching to his son. That's the pitfall of evil. You turn into that horror, not overnight, but by degrees. So slowly that you hardly realize what's happening to you. One commentator said, it's a warning against setting foot on a path which one might think adventurous and diverting. For it can lead as far as this. The Bible does not hide the fact that one can become as zealous for evil as for good. They didn't become evil holics overnight. It was one step down the road. Initially they thought it might be fun, might be adventurous, might be diverting. Um, and it came to something horrible. Um, another commentator quoted Alexander Pope. I wanted to quote this, but I didn't want to make you think I sit around reading Alexander Pope all the time. Um, but he quoted this, and I thought it was so apt. He, he said, vice is a monster of so frightful main as to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too often, too familiar that face, we must first endure then pity, then embrace. You know, at first you can't look at it, and then you can look at it and you can endure it, and then you look at it and you endure it, and you feel some sympathy for it, and before long you're embracing it. Um, That's the nature of the monster. That same commentator quoting him goes on to say, the Mr. Hyde within them has triumphed over the Dr. Jekyll. He said the spread of homosexuality in America in less than a generation validates the danger of progressive hardening to sin. He brings up that last point. It made me think that it was only in 2008 that the state of California passed a proposition outlawing same-sex marriage. 52 to 47, it was a pretty pretty good vote. In this state, 2008, um, and a majority of politicians supported that even Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama supported that. Now here we are what 14 years later, can you imagine that passing in California? Can you imagine a majority of politicians saying they supported something like that? And we could we could kind of go down the list of things that we've just become hardened in that just seem normal now that would have been inconceivable 15 or 20 years ago. How does that happen? not overnight but by degrees we become hardened into these things and the father is saying to his son you know no one no one starts out an evil holic no one starts out addicted to evil it happens by degrees and it happens in in such a way that you don't even know how it's happened to you or the full extent of what's happened to you That's the sad thing about how the tragedy of the wicked is described in verse 19. They are in a deep darkness. The kind of darkness you can't function in. The kind of darkness that God visited on the Egyptians as the second to last plague. Um, Exodus tells us it was a darkness that could be felt. It was a palpable darkness. It was so dark that people didn't talk to each other. People didn't go out. It was an oppressive darkness. That's the darkness in which the wicked walk. They don't even know over what they stumble. Uh, Contrast that with the knowledge of the righteous and the path of the righteous over which nothing can make you stumble. Here, they don't even have any idea what they're stumbling over. They're walking around in the dark. They don't know how it came to this. They don't know over what they're stumbling, but they stumble. That's the doom of walking down that path. You find yourself in the dark, tripping up over and over again and being totally bewildered by what's happening, not understanding why it's happening. We have people today who wring their hands over all kinds of social concerns. How did it come to this? And the Christian stands back and says, how do do you ask, how does it come to this? It comes to this by completely ignoring what God has said about everything. One through ten, just go through the Ten Commandments. It comes from ignoring everything. And then society throws up its hands and says, how do we come to this? What do we do about it? They're walking around in the dark. They have no idea how to find their way out. Um, We should be aware of that when worldly theories of how we solve problems come to us. To look at it with a skeptical eye and say, I suspect you're wandering around in the darkness, not even sure over what you're tripping. That's the tragedy of the wicked. That's the tragedy of where they've ended up. It's a tragedy, but it's also a kind of justice, isn't it? Because who are these people There are people who are always looking around to make someone else stumble. Uh, They couldn't sleep unless they'd made someone stumble. Well, now a just and holy God has thrown them into a darkness where they just wander around to stumble. That's the answer to the prayer of the afflicted that goes up in Psalm 35, 6 through 8. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. Um, The Father is saying, Son, that's that road. Don't take a step in it, don't walk in it. Walk this way. Because what does this way promise? What does the track of uprightness promise? It promises light. It promises light. This way promises stumbling around in the dark. This way promises ever-increasing safety and security and light. The passage paints an entirely different picture of the path of the righteous. It's the contrast, as one person said, between the darkness that envelops and the light that develops on the path of the upright. Not only is the way of the righteous safe and proven, but it gets increasingly more safe and sure. That's the promise of light that breaks on that path. It's the promise of increasing light in verse 18. What do we read there? The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Maybe some of you driving to church this morning experienced the light of the dawn. You had to pull down the visor on your car, put on your sunglasses because the, the brightness of the light was shining. But we know that that brightness of the dawn just continues to give way to the brightness of full day. That's how the path of righteousness is described. As you walk down it, it just gets brighter and lighter. It just gets safer. You just experience more certainty, More security. Uh, more surefootedness as you go on, growing towards the light until the full day shines. It's a glorious description of the path of the righteous. The commentator said, no clouds, not even a shadow on the path of the righteous. Light symbolizes true piety and morality together with safety, salvation, and well-being. It is doubly secure, free from obstacles, and well-lit. It just grows and grows in light until the light of the full day is established. That's the fate of the righteous as they walk on this path. It just becomes safer and surer and brighter. Again, we have to look at that as the horizon of eternity, but that is the way for the people of God until the full light of salvation shines upon us. And isn't this the promise that Jesus Christ brought with him in coming into the world? He was the light that broke in to the darkness. A sunrise, the bright light of dawn coming into a dark world. That's what Zachariah saw with the help of the Holy Spirit as he prophesied about the Jesus who was about to come. He said in Luke 1, 78 and 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. So, what John celebrates in the first chapter of his gospel. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Here is the true light coming into the world. The bright light of dawn shining. The one who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. His first coming was the sunrise, the bright light of dawn. And it does nothing but wax. The kingdom of God does nothing but grow. It suffers no retreats or setbacks. It advances. It advances till what? Till that sunrise becomes the bright light of full day shining. The beginning of salvation began with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. But the full light of salvation will come when he comes again in glory. Then the light of the full day will be established on the people of God. In the life that we hope for. and the life where we long for in his returning. The sunrise who rises again with healing in his wings. On that day when he comes again in glory. When he brings the new Jerusalem with him that city that has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. It's an eternal full day light, an eternal Sabbath, an eternal rest in the light of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the glory of following that path. This is the glory that awaits all those who follow that path that our Lord Jesus Christ leads us on, that leads to life. We go from security to security, from certainty to certainty, from light to light, from glory to glory. And it's true no matter what the outward circumstances of our life in this world suggest to us. There are going to be times that things appear to be going very well for the wicked and very poorly for the righteous it seems like going on this path is paying, and going on this path doesn't seem to be going so well. But what is the reality? This path leads to life. The Apostle Paul put it, and we'll close with this, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May we all take God's word to heart and choose the path that leads to light and life. And let us walk in the light on that ancient and proven track of wisdom that is good and right and true and pleasing to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you for the promise that is so clear to us in Christ, that he is the way that leads to life. We pray that we would follow in that way always, that we would keep hold of it and not let go of it, that we would guard the wisdom that is our way to life. And as for the other path, may we forsake it utterly and not take a step in it, but might be mindful of where that path leads us in the end. And so, Lord, help us always to walk according to your wisdom on the path that Christ has guided us on and continues to guide us on by his spirit. May we find life in his name. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.